on their level. So today, we're going to begin a new series. We have been in the book of Mark. We're going to continue to be in the book of Mark. And we're going to fast forward just a little bit to Mark chapter 14. So if you'd like to go ahead and open up your Bible to Mark chapter 14, you can download today's sermon notes online. You can find it on version, or you can get one of the bulletins here that is uh, present in the room and, and you can fill in the notes. I encourage you to do that because as I was telling someone this morning, you can take it with you and it might be something that you need to be encouraged with later on that you may be able to find or look up. So this morning, I want to begin... I'll be right back. With asking you a question. What do you know about measuring? I mean, we are surrounded by measurements, are we not? I mean, right here I have a thing that's called a level. And you know what this level is for? It is for measuring whether something is level. This pulpit is quite level according to this. It measures whether it is actually a perpendicular to a straight line that would be on the floor or if it's off and it's, it's sideways or if it's, this measures whether it's level. Now, many of you, you may not know this, but if you take a level and you stand it up this way, it'll, it'll give you a straight up and down line completely perpendicular to the gravity that's in the room and, and the flow of, of water, it'll, it'll tell you perpendicularly that is a straight line. This measures something. It measures whether something's level or not. How about, how about this? We often use something like this, don't we? Now, this isn't, this isn't the kind of measuring tape that you'd go, rawr, 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 rawr. This is the kind you get in one of those little kits that you just keep around the house. As a matter of fact, you may be able to tell somebody has abused this one a little bit. I'm not going to mention any names, but his initials are me. Because <laughs> when you can't find your good, when you grab what you got, right? right? And you go use it, and sometimes it just doesn't cooperate the way you would expect a good one to cooperate. And it falls over. It's very thin. But this measures what? It, it measures length. When, when I want to know how long this pulpit is, I can put it up here, and I can see it... it it's exactly 30 inches. From this edge to that edge is 30 inches. Now, I can measure my height, and I can look at it, and I can go, okay, let's see here. I am, I am six foot one. Yep, six foot one. That's how, how tall I am. This is here for us to measure, and that measures length. How about this? Some of you know what, what, what this is for. This is a measuring cup. This measures if you're, you're going to bake something or make something. You want to measure out your ingredients. You want to get it just right. You don't use this to estimate anything. You don't, you don't just guess at it. Now, if, if you're one of those old school cooks where you're just really good, you don't measure nothing. You just go throw it in there and it turns out delicious. My mama could do that. I can't do that. I got to measure stuff. This measuring cup is important. It, it, measures, it measures volume. It measures one cup, two cup, three cups, things of that nature. We also have things that measure time, right? We've got watches that are on, on, the, on our arms. We've got watches that are on our clocks to tell us what time it is. So we know that right now it is not 11 p.m. It's 11 a.m. We can tell that by, by being light outside. This, this is a jug. What is, what is this? When you look at this, what do you immediately think? A gallon. This is a gallon, right? This, this is a gallon of sweet tea, milk, water, whatever. You see this and you think gallon. It, it is a measure of volume. How about this? I know many of you love these. This right here is one of those things that I avoid. 
but it measures weight. We measure things in our life. We, we measure speed, how fast we travel, how fast we're going. That is important. we got people who keep us accountable to that. That is not what I wanted to see. I have not been encouraged by this sermon whatsoever. <laughs> but my point is, there's measurements all around us, right? Whenever your spouse says to you, hey, on the way home, would you mind stopping and getting 12 inches of milk? Do they do that? No. They don't say, stop and get, it, get me about 12 inches of milk. Because did you know about 12 inches can be a gallon or a half a gallon? You, you may get it right, you may not. Or whenever you go out to cut a two-before, you don't tell your partner who's doing the cutting, would you mind going over there and cut me about a gallon on that two-before? That would make no sense, now wouldn't it? It would make no sense to take a measurement and apply it to something it was never meant to be applied to. And here's the problem in our life. Did you know we do that very thing with our life spiritually? We will take what never intended to be a measurement to measure ourselves and to measure other people. And you want to know what that measurement is? Perfection. We look at other people and we look at ourselves and we say, I don't measure up to the perfection that I see online, to the perfection of other Christians. I don't measure up to the perfection that God expects of me. And therefore, I just don't measure up. So let's not be measuring ourselves by the wrong measurement. Let's not be looking for 12 inches of milk or a gallon of a two-before. Let's understand the measurement that God uses for you and I that we need to use for each other. Let's dive into Mark chapter 14. Fast forwarding from where we have been in Mark chapter 5, a lot has taken place. Jesus has performed many miracles. There's been a lot of teaching. There has been interaction with the disciples. There have been some people who have followed Jesus and some who have walked away. Yes, people walked away from Jesus even when He was on this earth. There have been moments when the religious elite wanted to kill him, but they felt like they couldn't get away with it. So we come to a place where this is actually beginning the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And let me tell you something. The last 24 hours of his life will transform your every day. So as we're looking into this, I want us to lean into the passion and just really grab hold of Jesus during these last 24 hours. And these last, uh, actually it's probably not even 24 when we pick up right here in chapter 14. There is a plot that comes up to kill Jesus. And there is a man who is Jesus' friend named Judas who says, I'll take that, that money. He makes... He makes a deal with the religious people that he would hand over Jesus at the opportune time, the perfect time, so that there wouldn't be any problems for them. They pay him in silver coins. Now, many have conjected, many, many theologians who's come before me who have said that Judas was doing it because he was against Jesus. He didn't love Jesus there were also theologians that said Judas was doing it to cause Jesus to call his hand and to rise up against Rome. Whatever Judas's motivation, he betrayed the very one he ate with, he saw perform miracles, and even perform miracles in his own life right before him. But here we have 
this plot against Jesus, and Jesus knows this is coming. He's been warning his disciples. And it comes to the Last Supper. He tells his disciples, go, you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. Go follow him and ask him and, say, and just say to him, the master needs the use of your upper room and get it ready for the Passover. He gets it ready and they have their final Passover. They have their final meal together in which a lot takes place there. Many of you are familiar with it, but what I want us to do is get after that meal because what happens in the garden will transform our life. Because if anybody, if anyone could be perfect, it should be the ones who was walking with Jesus every day. The ones who could talk to him and ask him a question and simply say, Jesus, what do you think about this? Those should be the ones that could be perfect and measure up to that standard. But yet after supper, we're going to find in verse 26... In chapter 14, after singing a hymn, this is why we always sing a hymn after Passover, after our Lord's Supper, after the communion. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, this was a place right outside of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives was also kind of known as, as, as the olive press. There was an olive press there. Now, I want you to think about this olive press, that it would be pressing against the olives to squeeze out the oil. And in this garden this night, there would be a pressing on the disciples that would squeeze out the real condition of their heart. So on the Mount of Olives, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they go... Verse 27, as they're on their way, this is what Jesus says to them. You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said, now remember, Jesus said this to how many disciples? Come on, help me out here. How many disciples did he say that to? All of them. Jesus said, all of you will fall away. But Peter said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. I'm with you, man. I'm behind you. Everybody else can walk away, but not me. I'm, I'm going to be with you. Don't miss the end of verse 31. And they all were saying the same thing. They were all saying the same thing, saying, Jesus, we're going to stick with you. It don't matter when the rubber meets the road, when, when it gets tough, the tough's going to get going and we're going to be right there with you. We've got your back, man. We're there. We are like brothers. We're tight. Nothing's going to stop us from having your back. That was their attitude. But what happens to follow? Jesus takes his three comrades we saw go with him when he healed the little girl. 
Peter, James, and John and, and brings them a little bit farther than the rest of the disciples. And he says, wait here and pray with me. And then Jesus goes a little farther and he falls down on his face and he prays with such anguish, such pain, because he knows what's coming. And he, he declared, God, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Don't let me have to carry this. But it's not about me. It's about what you want in my life, Jesus prayed. And he got up and he went back. And there's his three disciples. And you know what they were doing? They were standing ready. They were like, come on, bring it. We're praying, we're ready. Nope, that's not what was going on. His three disciples had fallen asleep. And so what he did was, was he went back and he prayed some more. And after he prayed some more, he came back and they were still asleep. And so he tells them, here they come. So in this garden where it's pressing, it's known as the olive press, to press out the oil of the olive, these disciples are being pressed and they don't realize it. Because when they look and behold, here comes a group. Judas is leading the way. He walks up to Jesus, kisses Him on the cheek, which was not an uncommon thing to do back then. I know that wouldn't be coronavirus acceptable, but they came up and they kissed Him on the cheek. Judas did. And then the arrest ensues. All of a sudden, chaos is going on all around. And all the disciples are there together and they're trying to figure out what's happening. And Peter draws his sword and he swings and he cuts off a man's ear. Peter's declaring, I'm with Jesus to the end. And Jesus just simply tells him to put up the sword, Peter. I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 48 of chapter 14. And Jesus said to them, to the ones who had come to arrest him. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Here's a side note that doesn't cost you a thing today. I want you to notice twice now Jesus points to what? The scriptures. Jesus is fulfilling His passion and fulfilling God's will because He's fulfilling the Scriptures. You cannot tell me the Scriptures are not important. They are the vital importance in your life, even when you are faced with death, even when you're faced with an enemy. The Scriptures are important. They were important to Jesus. They better be important to us. But He says, according to the Scriptures, verse 50. Here's where I want us to land for a second and just lean into this. And they all left him. How many left him? I said, how many left him? They all left him. And what did they do? They ran away. They didn't just back up and walk. They ran. The very ones who said, Jesus, we're with you, even if we have to die. We're with you. And they deserted him. In his most desperate hour of need, when he could have died, they turned around and left him. Forsaken. Left alone with the enemy. Verse 51 is very interesting because you only find it here in the book of Mark. A young man was following him I like this. Wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. Did you know that was in the Bible? 
Some of you might be surprised that's even in the Bible. But there was a, a young man there who was following them and watching everything that was going on that had nothing but a linen sheet covering his naked body. And it says, and they seized him, which means what? He did not run away with the rest of the disciples because he was hiding. He's watching what's going on. And so they seize him. And <laughs> this is kind of funny. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Some of you are laughing. That's, that, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Because, yeah, they call him the streak. <laughs> boogity, boogity. Fastest man on two feet. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. But it's true. Here's this guy. He was in the garden. He's watching. The disciples, they take off. He's hiding. They go to grab him. And off comes this sheet that he has on. Now, here's, here's how I'll explain this. It's really believed that the house they were in was where John Mark lived. John Mark was a young man that lived there, and the, the home belonged to his parents. And, and he had been watching the Lord's Supper, and he followed them out to the garden because he's so intrigued by all this. And he's, he, he's listening, he's following, and he gets out there, and this happens. And he's boogity boogity heading back home, completely naked. But there stands Jesus. No one. No one but his enemies surrounding him. See, the first thing is that the disciples forsook Jesus and they ran away. Even though they had committed themselves and said, We will not forsake you, Jesus. They all forsook Him and ran away. And by the measure of perfection, we would say they failed. They left Jesus. By the measure that we place upon other people when we say they don't measure up, they're not perfect enough. Or even ourselves, as we look in the mirror and we say, I'm just not good enough or perfect enough. The disciples failed. Warren Wiersbe said, are we like Peter? Do we talk when we should listen? Argue when we should obey? Sleep? when we should pray, and fight when we should submit. The story of Peter doesn't stop here. We get a glimpse. He's the only disciple we find out a little bit more about. They've already forsook Jesus and ran away. But don't miss something. We get a close-up view of this man named Peter. He said he would never forsake Jesus. But as Jesus is being illegally tried inside of Caiaphas' house, he is asked, you're one of those followers of Jesus. And Peter says, no, I'm not. I don't know Jesus. Soon someone else asks, yeah, you're one of those disciples of Jesus. Nope, I'm not. Finally, very innocent voice accuses him one more time. And the Word of God says, in verse 71, He began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. May God kill me if I'm lying. Verse 71, 
we see Peter once again, not once, not twice, not three times, but this is the fourth time that Peter has forsaken Jesus, turned his back on Jesus. But look what happens. Verse 72, immediately. Not five minutes later, not in two minutes, not in 30 seconds, but immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him and had made the remark, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. How would Peter react to this? Four times he has forsaken the very one he said he would never forsake. The end of verse 72 says he began to weep. Had he gone too far? Had he done too much? Had he turned his back on Jesus one time too many? Would Jesus ever forgive him? If anybody in Scripture points to the fact that you could be close to Christ and make some mistakes and really goof it up and have reasons that Jesus would not love you, Peter was one of them. Because let me tell you, I've given God a million reasons not to love me, but you know what? It's never stopped him one time. When we look at this, we look at the disciples and we begin to judge and we begin to say things and we begin to assume some stuff about this story. But I want us to just press in a little bit, if you will. And I want you to think about something. How many times have we felt like we have forsaken Jesus? How many times have we gone, man, Jesus, I failed you today. I didn't do my quiet time. I got too busy. I didn't pray. Man, Jesus, I let that word slip out of my mouth. It shouldn't have been there. I have disappointed you once again, Lord. I'm just not good enough. Lord, I'm not perfect. Somebody needs to hear this message today because God has pressed this on my heart so much. And this morning, as I was waking up, God just really pressed on me this idea of the difference between perfection and holiness. We try to measure our Christian lives and the lives of others through the eyes of perfection. And that's like measuring a gallon with a measuring tape. Because that is not what we need to be measuring. We need to measure Based on holiness. And those are two different things. I've got to quote somebody this morning. i got to quote a very wise young woman by the name of Eliza Self. You know what she said? This? You better get your pen ready. All right, Get your pen and pencil ready. Get your phone out. You're going to have to Facebook tweet this thing or do something. Put it on Instagram. This is so good. She said, perfection... Is about expectation, but holiness is about connection. Whoo, yeah! <laughs> Perfection is about expectation, but ho holiness is about a connection. 
We continue to measure our lives based on our performance and being perfect when God simply says to be holy, and that's about a connection. He said to be holy as I am holy. But here's the beautiful thing, the transforming truth that will touch your everyday life. Even though you may not be perfect, and even though you may not have measured up to the expectations you've placed on yourself or from other people, the disciples, we would expect them to hang in there with Jesus. And they failed. But even in our mistakes, let me tell you something. God's love transcends every mistake. All of them. When you miss your quiet time, God's love transcends that. He's not looking for you to be perfect. He's looking for you to be holy. And what is holiness? Holiness is about a what? A connection. Now we can measure the condition of our heart by listening to our tongue. We can measure the condition of our heart by watching the actions of our hands and where our feet will take us. But this today is simply about removing the expectation of perfection and focusing on the holiness that only God brings through a connection. The disciples later would not even believe that Jesus was alive. And you know what Jesus had told them? We even read it. I will come back to life again. But yet they said, there's no way. Even Thomas. Thomas said, only if I can take my finger and stick it in the scars in his hands and in his side, would I believe that that man is alive again. Even the disciples made mistakes. Their feelings of guilt had to just ride high. Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine seeing Jesus alive for the first time after you've gone, well, it's hopeless, it's over. The two guys that Jesus walked with on the road to Emmaus that, that they had said, well, we had thought He was the Messiah. We thought He was the one, but with all the stuff that's happened, it's over. We don't know. But yet, the beauty of that moment is Jesus walked right with them explaining everything. Jesus did not measure whether they were worth His grace based on their performance and their actions or whether they had lived up to be perfect. If, they, if Jesus had anybody to push away, it should have been the disciples that forsook Him in the, His hour of need. But he didn't. Somebody today is living a life enslaved and entrapped in the idea of perfection. It's not about being perfect. But pastor, I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do. The Bible tells us we're supposed to do certain things and not do certain things. You're absolutely right, it does. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm not saying you're not supposed to, to do everything you can to follow God's Word. What I'm saying is release the chains of trying to perform and simply grab hold of being connected to a holy God who will make you holy without you having to check off a list. If anybody... If anyone should have been pushed away, it should have been the disciples. But yet, Jesus in all His grace, mercy, and power 
the very one that's recorded in the Gospels as fleeing in the garden, denying Jesus three times, is the very one who preaches the first sermon and God uses to reach 3,000 people. And if God can do that to a man who would deny Jesus, what can He do using you? Stop pursuing perfection and pursue holiness instead. We often try to encounter, uh, counter our past mistakes. We try to fix the things that's going on by being perfect in the present. But let me tell you today, those mistakes are going to continue to follow and haunt you no matter how fast you run. They're there. We can't deny them. But the one thing we can grab hold of is the love that transcends every mistake we've ever made. That's the love of Jesus. And if Jesus can love a ragtag group like these disciples who declares to His face, I'll never leave you, but yet turns their back and runs, if He can use them, He can use you. What must we do with this? Well, the first thing is, is we need to let go of failure. We need to let go of all the mistakes and the things that we keep doing to mess up, all the things that we can't measure up to. We need to let go of that. We need to just let God take that. All of us are guilty like the disciples. All of us are guilty of disappointing Jesus. If I did a survey right now and I asked you to raise your hand, if you ever felt like you have disappointed Jesus in some way, I guarantee you this room would be full of hands lifting up. And if today you don't know Jesus, I want you to know, every one of us who does, we feel like we have disappointed Jesus. And there are times that we wrestle with guilt over that. But again, it's not about the expectation of being perfect. It's about the connection we have with a holy God through Jesus Christ. We cannot excuse the things we've done. And we have to deal with the consequences oftentimes. But we have to run to the one who offers us grace that transcends all that we have ever done. So we have to let go of the failure and place it into God's hand and stop holding on to it. Because you know what? I feel like the Lord just gave me a word for somebody. You're not going to make it look good. You're not going to fix it. As long as you hold on to it, you're never going to be able to be free from it. God, before I give it to you, I want, you to look, I want it to look a little bit better. I want to smooth up the edges. I want to make things right. I want it to, to be, I want it to smell better. I want it to feel better. I want to feel good, God, when I give it to you. Right now, I feel terrible. You know what Jesus says? It is for that moment I died for you. He died for you in that moment to open your hand and just let it go. And say, God, my failure I give to you. God, I've disappointed you. I've messed up again. I haven't done what I should. There I go again, Lord. You've got to get tired of me. You know what God's saying the whole time? Never, my child. 
Never. The second thing is not only do we need to let go of our failure, but we need to embrace, embrace His grace and unconditional love for us. Embrace it. Not just pick it up, but embrace it. Hold on to it. Grab it. Jesus pointed to scriptures. Can I point to scripture just for a second? 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does not say we have to fix it up, clean it up, make it look a little bit better, make sure it measures up to the expectations of all those in the room and all the other Christians and measure up to the expectations of what mama wants or daddy wants or, or my boyfriend or girlfriend or, or anybody. God simply wants us to bring it to Him, confess our sins, and He is faithful and just to, number one, forgive us and to cleanse us. It's not about perfection, ladies and gentlemen. It's about holiness. And that holiness only comes through that connection through Jesus Christ. I'm very thankful that the disciples this day, they were connected to Christ. Yeah, they walked with Him, they talked with Him, but they struggled in their faith. They turned their back on Jesus. They had questions. They dealt with guilt. But yet Jesus forgave every bit of it. And if Jesus would forgive the very men who ran away that night and denied they even knew Him, what level is your failure compared to that? So you've messed up. Jesus will forgive it. He died for all of our sins, the ugly and the ones that smell a little bit better. And He wants them just like that. Here's your seven-day challenge this week. Something just very simple. This is a personal thing this week. It's about you. It's about simply saying, Father, what inside of me needs to become more holy? Because let me tell you, your actions come out of your heart. So what inside of me needs to become more holy so that the words I speak, come on now, the things I do, the places I go, the stuff that I listen to, the things that I laugh at, what inside of me needs to become more holy so those things are changed? Don't, I'm not asking you to change those things. Pastor, you're a weird preacher. I'm asking you to let God change you on the inside because I know He will change the things. So where are you today? Maybe you're dealing with some grief. Maybe you're dealing with some guilt. Maybe you're dealing with some, some, some failure or you have struggled because you feel like you just can't measure up. You keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, but you keep failing and you keep failing and you keep failing and you keep failing. Do not let today's sermon be an excuse for the sin in your life. Do not say, well, I'm just going to fail. God's going to love me anyway. God, have mercy on your soul if you have that attitude. Let today be the day that you say, Father, this is going to hurt. I know it. I'm not going to like it. 
It's going to be a difficult process. It scares me. But if there's something inside of me that needs to be more holy, God, you, you work on it. You do it. Because God desires for you to be holy. And if you make a mistake, His grace will cover it all. Just like it did the disciples. Pray with me. Father, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for this day. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your grace. Your grace that transcends my mistakes, my mess-ups, my forgetfulness. Lord, sometimes I put a period when there should be a question mark. And you forgive that. Sometimes our sin is much greater than a punctuation. It is something that is atrocious. And God, you forgive that. When you died on the cross, you died for all of our sins, not just some. Even the moments when we fail you and we don't measure up. Father, we pray that through the connection of Jesus Christ that you make us holy. Somebody say it with me. Make me holy, Lord. Today, if you have not begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's going to be impossible for you to be holy. You must have the Holy Spirit living inside of you for you to become and be holy. So today, will you invite Jesus to forgive you and take over your life? Then you can know about that connection of holiness. Today, if you're struggling and you have guilt, if you feel like you have failed and you have just not measured up, will you release that to the Lord today? Just give that to Him. And just simply let Him know that it belongs to Him. You're giving it to Him. But you're not going to hold on to it any longer. Today's the day to embrace the grace and unconditional love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of God the Father, the hope that He brings. This is what we are for.